So before our scripture lesson, before I read that lesson for us this morning, just a word about our Lenten sermon series. Uh, For the next six weeks, we are going to be journeying through the Gospel of Mark, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. Mark has become a favorite among scholars, favorite among contemporary scholars, and the reason being is that Mark is the first gospel that was written down. Um, I know if you look in your New Testaments, Matthew is the first book that appears. Um, Just a reminder that the New Testament is not necessarily in chronological order, and neither are the Gospels. Um, Mark, they figured out, is actually the first gospel that was written down. Um, It is the original gospel, the OG gospel, as the young people say. Um, If you are looking for the story that is as close as possible to the life of Jesus, this is the story. Um, So we're going to spend the next six weeks exploring some of the themes from the Gospel of Mark of course, six weeks is not nearly enough time to explore the entirety of the gospel. Um, it's not even enough time to get into all of the depth we could get into at the gospel of Mark. Commentaries have been written voluminously on his gospel, um, but we will be able to hit on some of those themes. Um, I might suggest, too, that as we go through the season of Lent, it might be a, a helpful thing for you all in your own private time to read through Mark's gospel, um, to get a sense of the, the things he says, the particular way that he talks about the life of Jesus. Um, Every gospel is different. Every gospel offers something unique, and Mark is no different. He has his own perspective uh, on Jesus. Uh, Mark writes his gospel down, scholars guess, somewhere between the years 66 and 70, or maybe a few years after that uh, of A.D. Um, And why that's significant is that what happens in the years 66 to 70 is what's known as the Jewish War. Um, So Jesus is crucified somewhere around 30, 33 A.D. So 40 years or so later, Mark is writing his gospel down, and 66 to 70, the Jewish war is this revolt that happens where the Jews try to overthrow the Roman occupation. Uh, that attempt fails really, really dramatically in a really bad way for the Jewish people. Um, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is raised to the ground. The Romans come in. They kick the Jews out. They're no longer allowed in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, there's a temple to the god Jupiter that's built on the Temple Mount. Um, so this is really a moment of national crisis. It's in a moment of identity crisis. Um, So remember that uh, as the Gospels are being written down, what we call Christians today um, was still a largely Jewish movement. So this is something that affects them as well. Um, So Mark might be a really good Gospel for us to read in this moment where we've kind of lived through our own difficult time in the past few years. Uh, Mark might have something helpful to say to us in light of all of those events. So um, with that, let's turn to our lesson for this morning, Mark 1, verses 21 through 28. Listen now for God's word to you. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept saying to one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A 
So if you go to the campus of Princeton Theological Seminary, where I was a student for three years, right in the heart of the seminary is the seminary chapel. Um, Its central location on the campus indicates that Princeton Seminary is not just a place of academic learning, but it's also a spiritual community, a place where worship happens. And so every weekday, while classes are in session from 1130 until noon, there are worship services that are held there in that chapel. And so if you stand on the quad, which sounds like a university, if you stand on the quad um, and you look towards the chapel or where the main, right next door to the chapel is where the, most of our classes were held. There's a, where the main academic building was right there. And if you stand there at about 11.20 in the morning, you can watch and see what happens. A horde of students will come streaming out of that building and a good number of them will make their way over to the chapel for worship. Some of them will make their way to the cafeteria to have lunch. We called that sinner's lunch in seminary. Um, <laughs> but a good number of them will make their way over to the chapel for worship. And I often found myself as, a, a, as one of those students making my way over to the chapel. Um, I tried to participate in daily worship as much as I possibly could. Um, it was one of the things that was most spiritually enriching amidst all of my academic responsibilities was getting to stop and to participate in worship. It's one of the things I missed most since I graduated six years ago was missing that opportunity for daily worship. You know, church is my life. I'm here every Sunday, and I tell folks I don't get to go to church because I'm leading it, and I, and I miss that participating in, in worship um, every single week. And so um, I would make my way up the, sto- the stone steps with the other students. I would pass through the white pillars and make my way into the chapel, and I would find my seat. Like a good Presbyterian, I sat in the same seat every single week, and like a good introvert, I sat in the back. Um, and so if you sit, once you sit in, t- in the seminary chapel, if you look forward, there are a couple of things that will grab your attention. The massive exposed pipe organ that played beautiful music. Um, there's also a, a communion table that sits sort of in the front. But then uh, what really is the centerpiece of the seminary chapel is the pulpit. It sits centered in the sanctuary, in the front of the sanctuary, in front of the two rows of pews. It's one of those tall pulpits that had a, a set of stairs you needed to climb up into to preach from. Um, and from that pulpit, I heard some of the most authoritative preaching that I had ever heard in my entire life. And if you stand in the pulpit, uh, there's a wood floor there, and there's actually two spots that are worn down from where the feet of preachers have stood over the years. Um, I remember when I was given the opportunity to preach in the chapel, because third-year students are allowed to preach. They don't allow first and second-year students to preach. They have no authority. Um, <laughs> but they would allow third-year students to preach once. That was the only authority you were given. I remember standing there, and I remember seeing those footprints, the footprints of the people who had stood before me in that pulpit and preach. Um, and I heard some of the most amazing sermons I had ever heard in my life from that pulpit, uh, from other seminary classmates, even from professors of New Testament, Old Testament, theology, church history, um, authorities in their field, people who had written books. Uh, they would find obscure passages somewhere in the Old or New Testament, and they would connect them to our daily lives. And, and even the, the seminary president at the time, who is to this day one of the best preachers I have ever heard, he would preach once a week in that chapel, and we would all leave And we would head towards lunch, and we would all be talking about what we had just heard, amazed at the things that we had just heard. However amazed we were at that seminary chapel, I imagine it pales in comparison to how that uh, crowd in Capernaum felt, that synagogue uh, congregation felt hearing Jesus' first sermon, Um, that we are located in Capernaum. We enter into the story in the Gospel of Mark 
amidst a flurry of activity. Mark moves at a really breakneck pace. Uh, Mark is known for being quick. Uh, his favorite word, maybe you've heard this before, his favorite word is immediately. Immediately Jesus goes there, immediately Jesus went there. Uh, Mark doesn't take a lot of time for us to stop and slow down and orient ourselves to where we are. Uh, Mark kind of reminds me of one of the bullet trains that you find like in Europe or Southeast Asia. Um, you're always moving quickly. And sometimes Mark does slow down the train enough and spend considerable amount of time giving us details on things. And when he does that, we should pay special attention. But Mark moves very quickly. We're only 20 verses into his gospel, and already there's been a flurry of activity that's happened. 20 verses in, and already Jesus has been baptized by John out on the banks of the Jordan River. 20 verses in, and Jesus has already gone out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, kind of a way of formatting our season of Lent. 20 verses in, and Jesus has already announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. 20 verses in, Jesus has already called his first disciples. 20 verses in, and we end up here in the Capernaum synagogue. Um, Capernaum was a small but relatively significant city along the northwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, there was a, a, uh, a place where tax collectors, an outpost for tax collectors, there was a, an outpost for Roman soldiers that were stationed there in Capernaum. Um, but the majority of people who lived in Capernaum participated in the local economy, which was fishing. Most of them looked like uh, Jesus' disciples, his earliest disciples at least. Um, and Capernaum really becomes Jesus' adopted hometown throughout the Gospel of Mark. It becomes his home base. Like, he, he grows up in Nazareth, but he sort of relocates his life to Capernaum. This is where he launches his uh, Galilean ministry. And so, because this is a Jewish community, the center of their spiritual life is the synagogue. This is where the people worshipped every single Sabbath day. And this is when Jesus and those first disciples show up in the Gospel of Mark. They show up on the Sabbath day. And the town is a lot more quiet than usual. The boats that are normally out on the lake fishing are sitting idle in the harbor. The marketplace is not bustling with activity and people buying and selling and all of that sort of thing. And what I like to imagine happens when Jesus and his disciples show up is what I saw every weekday at 1120 at Princeton Seminary a large group of people making their way to a house of worship, all of those people making their way into the Capernaum synagogue. And so they walk in, they shake hands with a few people, they grab the bulletin, they grab their favorite pew, the pew they sit in every single week. Uh, the, the pastor gives a word of welcome and asks them to fill out the friendship registration pad at the end of each pew. And then worship begins. Now, apparently in Capernaum, there were a lot of religious scholars and authorities who often graced that pulpit. Uh, they were people who had a lot of authority. They were experts in their field. They had titles like reverend and doctrine from their name, things like PhD or MDiv following their name. They had written books. They were authorities in their respective fields. They had excellent theology. Their exegesis was concise of any scriptural passage. And yet, it seems for the synagogue goers in Capernaum that something was missing in their teaching. As, as well-crafted as it was, as big of experts as they were, it seemed to miss their day-to-day -day concerns, the lived reality of those people who worshipped every day in the Capernaum synagogue, or worshipped every Sabbath day in the Capernaum synagogue. But that particular Saturday, they had a guest preacher, someone named Jesus of Nazareth, 
Um, this was not his home synagogue. So last week we had his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke in Nazareth, his home synagogue, the community that raised him with all the church mothers and fathers who knew him best. But there's no sense that Jesus has been to the Capernaum synagogue before. Maybe he had. Maybe he'd been there as a visitor before. But in my understanding, my imagination, Jesus had never preached in that pulpit before. And it's one of those tall pulpits, right, with a spot on the, two spots on the floor where the, the shoe prints are worn down, where people of a lot of authority have preached before. Jesus ascends that pulpit and he begins to preach his sermon. And the, the people are captivated. They are amazed at the things that Jesus is saying. What is this, they say, a teaching with an, a new kind of authority? What is it that amazes this crowd? What is it that, that captivates them so much? Because did you notice when I read the story, it says that Jesus was teaching, but we don't actually hear what Jesus said. Unlike last week's story of his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke, we hear exactly what Jesus said, but, but we don't hear anything that Jesus said in this first sermon in the Gospel of Mark, and it sort of frustrates me. I want to know what Jesus said. Couldn't we at least have an MP3 recording of it, or <laughs> couldn't someone have posted a link to the Capernaum Synagogue Facebook page so we could hear what Jesus said? A transcript would have been nice, but we don't hear what Jesus said. And that's not like Mark did this unintentionally. It's not like the, the quill budget was, was short and he couldn't write down what Jesus said or something like that. This is where I think that Mark is sort of a literary genius, that this is an intentional move by him, that this happens often, not always, but often in the Gospel of Mark, that we hear that Jesus was teaching but we don't hear what he said. And the reason being is that the content of Jesus' teaching is revealed in his actions. We know what Jesus says by watching and observing and seeing the things that he does. And so we're watching Jesus in this story. And as he's preaching this most amazing sermon anyone has ever heard, that's when he's interrupted. A man with an unclean spirit stands up. He, he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of God? He, he seems to know who Jesus is. He interrupts that sermon, the most amazing sermon that anyone in the Capernaum synagogue has ever heard. Now, I imagine that there were people in that synagogue who were there for a variety of reasons. Their reasons for being there that morning were as varied as every person. They were in different places uh, the places that they were in in their lives were as varied as the people who were there. That I imagine that there were some who came to that synagogue that morning who were really ready for worship, who, had, who, who were excited, ready to hear something. But I also imagine that there were others who showed up that morning who were filled with a considerable amount of anxiety. They had a bad week at work. They were worried about finances. Could they put money on the table? Could they pay the bills? There might have been other people who had showed up that morning who had a rough morning with the kids. You know, they wouldn't put their socks on. They were running late, and they yelled at them on the way into synagogue, and they were feeling guilty about what they had said and how they had responded to their kids. Um, I imagine that there were others who hadn't slept well that night before, and they, the coffee was out at the house. They forgot to buy some on their last grocery trip, and they were frustrated, angry, crabby. But then they're sitting there listening to this guest preacher, Jesus of Nazareth, give this sermon that really connects with their lives, gives them the word of hope that they so desperately need. And then all of that gets interrupted. 
Imagine yourself in that position. You're connecting with the worship service in a really particular way, and then someone jumps up and interrupts what's going on. Don't try that now, but (laughs) someone jumps up and interrupts what's being said. How might you react? Imagine that there are some who are backing away from this man. Imagine that there are others who know this man well. He's a member of the community. They're trying to calm him down. I imagine others are looking around, waiting for the ushers to come and escort him out of service. Imagine some look back to the pulpit to see what the preacher is going to do. And when they look back, Jesus is no longer standing in the pulpit, the place where authoritative preachers have stood for a long time. Instead, Jesus has descended, and he is now face to face with this man who is struggling, who is having a hard time. Someone who is struggling and afflicted with what Mark calls an unclean spirit. And now it might irk our modern sensibilities a little bit to think about unclean spirits or demonic possession, and I understand all of that. It gives me some questions and some pause too, but but let's understand that within the worldview of Jesus and Mark, demonic possession was just a common thing. And we shouldn't write it off too easily with all of our medical knowledge and psychological evaluations and all that. We should understand that this is a man who is struggling with a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual crisis, something that has afflicted him that is contrary to God's good intentions. He's at the end of his rope. He's not really sure where to turn. And here comes this preacher and stands face to face with him. And everybody in the synagogue is watching and waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. And that's when Jesus exercises the demon, casts out the demon, says, be silent, come out of him. And the man is restored to who he actually is. And the crowd is amazed. The congregation is amazed at what they're seeing. What is this, they say, a teaching with a new kind of authority? What was it that gave Jesus authority? What was it that made the crowd say that? Certainly, it wasn't the things that Jesus was necessarily saying. It wasn't his, his exegesis, his theology, his well-crafted thoughts from his sermon. It wasn't any of that. They had the religious scribes and authorities for that. It wasn't even, I don't think, the miracle per se that captivated them so much. There were plenty of other miracle workers within the world that Jesus lived in, and they were a lot better at it than Jesus was. And by that, I mean they were good at monetizing and commodifying miracles, they would set up shop in some home somewhere in one of the towns, and then they would charge people to receive their miracles, and Jesus just kind of gives it away for free. What was it that captivated them? It was the fact that his teaching had something behind it, had actions behind it, that in Jesus, they saw somebody who didn't just simply talk about things, but somebody who actually lived it out. They saw someone who didn't just talk about love but actually offered it to other people, especially to those that might feel unloved. That he didn't just give his theology of God's healing and God's presence in the midst of suffering, but he engaged with the suffering one right in his presence, someone from their own community. That Jesus didn't just talk about the kingdom of God, God's reign of justice and equity, but it burst forth in his very life. That he engages with those who live in the shadowy places of guilt and shame. That's who they saw in Jesus somebody who had something behind his message. That is what gave him authority. That is what gave him credibility. 
And I think that in our modern world, a world that has become sometimes increasingly skeptical and cynical about Christianity, and sometimes rightfully so, this sermon, this first sermon of Jesus in Capernaum, where we have no transcript, no recording, is a reminder to us that what gives our faith authority, what gives our faith credibility, is not so much the things that we say, but it's the things that we do. It's the ways that we live our lives. I think what people are longing to see are, is not, they're not longing to hear any more of the Christian message. They've heard a lot of that over the years. But they're longing to see people who live that message out, who have something behind the things that they say, who actually show love to those who feel in love, who, who care for those who are hurting. And I think that we as a congregation are especially situated to respond to that need that we are a community of people who like to do things. We are doers. That is one of the things that Greenfield is known for. And I want you to understand that that is, not, that is a kind of uncommon thing among Presbyterians. Uh, Presbyterians are not known for their moving very quickly. Um, when, G, when Mark says Jesus moved immediately, Presbyterians recoil a little bit because they like to debate and think about things. Um, you know there's a joke about how many, light, how many Presbyterians does it take to screw in a light bulb? Uh, 11 tend to form the light bulb committee and one to actually screw in the light bulb. Um, that's not who we are. We are people who do things. But the question is, what do people see as they watch and as they observe us? Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, we learn, we see who Jesus is by watching, by observing, by seeing the things that he does. And the world still knows who Jesus is by watching and observing those who bear his name. I think that Christianity for a long time, throughout much of its history, has defined itself based off of its beliefs, its doctrines, its dogmas, the, the things it claims cognitively to believe. I think enough ink and I think sometimes enough blood has been spilt defining those beliefs. I think what is longed for are people who live out that faith who understand that credibility and authority find their place in the things that we do. What do people see when they watch and observe us? You know, this is the season of Lent, after all, a time of renewal, a time of, of figuring out who we are, where, what do we need to take on. We, we give up coffee and chocolate and Netflix and all those other things to kind of make space to take on those new things. Maybe you take, give up those things. Um, there's a funny face over there. Um, <laughs> I love you, nine o'clockers. Um, I could never do that in the 11 o'clock. Um, but who, what do people see when they observe us? Do they see, well, who is the Christ that they see as they watch us? Do they see one who loves those who nobody loves? Do they see one who, who cares for those that are often left out? They see those who are working to create a better world, who, who hold on to the idea of hope, that to believe that the world can be better than it is, instead of falling into the cynicism that is so present in our own age. What do they see as they watch and as they observe? That is what gives the gospel, the good news, authority. It's what gave the gospel, the good news, authority 2,000 years ago in the Capernaum Synagogue. It's what continues to give the gospel authority and credibility today. The ways that we live, the things that others see us doing. Thanks be to God. Amen.